Good morning and greetings to each and every one that's here, those I can see and those I can't see. Uh, we're certainly grateful for you to be here uh, and that we can be gathered in this way this morning. Several things that I thought about that I'm especially grateful for this morning, and one is that we can meet without fear. Uh, granted, it's not um, as convenient or necessarily exactly the way we would prefer, but we can meet without fear, and that's a lot to be grateful for. The second thing is that we can meet without, uh, without uh, that we don't have sickness here among us. And I was particularly reminded of that um, by uh, with several events that have transpired here um, more recently. And the one is that my um, uncle Harley passed away on Thursday out in Kansas, just eight days after his older brother, William, passed away uh, there in the same community. And what is uh, interesting is I have two uncles and an aunt that live out there in Kansas, one in South Carolina. But of those two remaining uncles uh, and an aunt, two of them have COVID and won't even be able to be at the funeral uh, tomorrow. And, uh, and then in addition to that, my mom was telling me, she named somewhere between 15 and 20 people in the churches out there that have COVID right now. And uh, so we just have a lot to be grateful for here. And I don't want to take that for granted. And um, uh, it is certainly affecting my family and uh, cousins and uncles and aunts right now. And uh, while I would love to be there at the funeral, uh, it's not worth the risk either. So, you know, coming into 2020, I had a strong conviction about preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And, um, you know, uh, and I was thinking this year, I preached the first sermon in mid-January and the second one about a month later, and none since then. Um, and so, you know, it has altered our world since coronavirus struck in mid-March, and especially our, our Sunday gatherings, our ecclesia, if you will, uh, it's being gathered, and I've had a very difficult time refocusing back on this, what I consider an important book that I want to talk about. At the same time, there was really never a question in my mind whether I was going to come back and pick up where I left off. Well, the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this more, and this morning, I do want to pick up a bit where we left off in February, which has been a full six months ago. So we're going to start with a little bit of a recap and then uh, move on into uh, the text for today. <clears throat> Corinth was um, the one ancient city during the time that scripture was written that is probably most like a 21st century U.S. city, something akin to the greater Washington, D.C. area in a lot of ways. It was heavily populated. Over 700, around 700,000 people, and it's thought that half of those, or maybe even more than half, were probably slaves. And that is the approximate population of the city of Washington, D.C., uh, or Denver, or Seattle. And so that gives you a little bit of a picture of the size of the city. It was an economic powerhouse of that day, of the world, a lot like New York City today. 
It was the capital of Achaia, which is southern Greece, and it was the largest city in the Roman Empire. It was multicultural with a lot of diversities uh, in ethnicity and so forth. It was a Greek city in the Roman Empire with a large Jewish population. You just mix those three components in cells, makes it a very diverse city, Greek, Roman, and Jews. It was a transient population, many people constantly coming and going. It was on a six-mile land bridge between the Adriatic and Aegean seas, and so people would put the ship on the one side and transport their cargo to a ship on the other side to avoid going around into the Mediterranean Sea. It was a morally uh, promiscuous city, might equate it to Las Vegas or Amsterdam, and it was very religiously diverse. There was a lot of Greek and Roman pagan temples as well as Jewish presence there as well. So Paul preached and uh, that there in Acts 18, we read about that, and established a church there. He stayed about 18 months, and then within three to five years, he was writing this letter of 1 Corinthians to them, addressing questions that they had, as well as own, his own serious concerns of blatant sin within the church. And yet Paul starts the letter by greeting them warmly, commending them for their faith, and emphasizing that God is faithful. Regardless of the weakness or the sinfulness that was there, God is faithful, and God's true disciples, the church, will ultimately prevail. <clears throat> and then Paul doesn't waste any time to get into talking about some of the issues that he had with the church as well. He starts in chapter 1 by talking about the divisions and the splits that were developing in the church, and he explains that they're focused on the wrong things, and that it's a reflection of their lack of maturity. And then concludes chapter 1 by reminding them that they were mixing the gospel message with the wisdom of the world or popular culture, and they were putting their confidence and trust in men rather than the gospel itself. So this city, this culture, this church, this letter from Paul addresses many of the same big challenges that our church the church in our culture faces today, including us here. Chapter 2, then, Paul continues uh, the discussion about the gospel and the wisdom of men. Some within the church there in Corinth admired oratory and the philosophies of men and thought that the church should use men's philosophy, man's philosophy and wisdom to win converts, basically use the popular things of the day rather than the simple and yet despised or even revolting message of the cross. And so um, the title that I have for this morning's message is The Mind of Christ. And on its face, even that, that name, it's the, the statement itself that we can have the mind of Christ almost seems irreverent in a lot of ways. But this is the very last phrase of the text. And yet the entire chapter, I believe, is building up to that profound declaration uh, that believers do have, can have, and do have the mind of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit reveals it to them. <clears throat> so turn to 1 Corinthians 2, and I'd like for us to stand together as we read, read the text um, here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> 
And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man save the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. <clears throat> you may be seated. So Paul continues <clears throat> his thoughts from the end of chapter 1 on the contrast between man's wisdom and God's wisdom by making an emphatic and a clear declaration here in verse 1. And uh, I'm going to, I read that in King James, I'm going to be referring to this as we go through here from the ESV, uh, kind of to get the picture of both uh, translations here. But in verse 1, he says, and I came to you, brothers, not, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul came to Corinth with the message of the gospel, and yet he didn't approach the presentation of the gospel in a manner that was designed to draw large crowds with a well-polished, compelling speech, utilizing the uh, strategies of the oratory and the rhetorical skills that were commonly used by uh, influential leaders, whether they're philosophers, political or religious leaders, and so forth. But rather, Paul came with a simple and a clear proclamation of what God has done, a testimony of God himself. Now, the Corinthians were known um, as, a, as a people to gravitate toward and follow the person with the most elegant and the com- compelling presentation until the next one came along that they liked better. And so they would jump from one person to the next, that this is the greatest thing that's come along. And that's the very thing that was causing some of these divisions in the church, is that they were following a person 
a human rather than, than following God. And as such, they put a lot of emphasis on speech, on the speech, the style, the skill of the speaker, the logic and the arguments that they used, the popularity of the message was a gauge they used for whether it was relevant or not or whether it was something they were interested in. And Paul was determined from the onset that he was not going to get caught up in that kind of a mindset. Rather, he wanted to make sure that he kept the focus on what God has done rather than on himself or his skills or, uh, or what he has to offer. Then in verse 2, he makes a, a clear statement that he's decided that not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a bold declaration, and uh, that nothing matters except the gospel message. <clears throat> now, reading it literally, uh, it's clearly hyperbole, meaning that it's an exaggeration of what he meant, but it does mean that his number one priority is to focus on Jesus Christ. It's not that he didn't know anything else, but his priority was Jesus Christ. Paul had a vast knowledge, he had a good education and training, but he was determined that he was not going to rely on those things to, um, to emphasize those, but rather focusing on what happened after he was transformed on the road to Damascus. So he was an intelligent and highly educated person, but that wasn't the basis or that's not what he used to present the gospel message. <clears throat> But notice what he did. He emphasized the crucifixion. And this is within 30 years of, of, this, of, the, of the crucifixion happening. And while it, this says that he focused on Christ uh, crucified, it doesn't mean that he didn't reference the resurrection as well. That was just part of the story uh, from 30 years ago. It included everything. <coughs> But by emphasizing the crucifixion, Paul was potentially ostracizing himself from the very people that he wanted to reach because crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world as so horrible, so revolting, so degrading that you just simply wouldn't mention it in polite society. Uh, you didn't talk about things like the crucifixion. And to give a little bit of an idea, uh, one commentator put it this way, imagine someone at a fashionable dinner party going on in a loud voice about how he saw rats gnawing and ripping flesh from a dead dog in the street. You know, that just wouldn't go over. You just wouldn't talk about something like that publicly. Uh, and yet, that's the kind of impression that one made in the first century when you got up and started talking about crucifixion. And so this is what Paul was doing. He was presenting Christ crucified. No self-respecting public figure would do that um, if they wanted to make a good impression. Yet Paul didn't shy away from telling the story again and again and communicating that this was the only way to ever find true meaning in life, was through what Christ did through the crucifixion. <clears throat> in verses 3 through 5, he again kind of... Uh, repeats himself a bit from what he said earlier, but in the first phrase there he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It's not exactly clear what Paul is referring to there. Perhaps he got sick or was sickly while he was with them. <clears throat> As a result of not feeling well, he was concerned whether that might compromise the message. We don't really know. But then he reemphasizes what he stated in verse 1, that he didn't 
present the gospel with an emotionally charged or polished stump speech that attracts the masses to get the audience worked up into action. Rather, he was relying, rather than relying on this kind of a human technique, he demonstrated that the effectiveness was from someone else, from another, a far greater source of power, the spirit, um, the Holy Spirit within us. It was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The reason for this approach was that so that the Corinthian believers' faith would not rest on human wisdom or the level of the degree of uh, intellect or eloquence or persuasiveness, but rather that it rest in God, who is the creator, sustainer, and redeemer for each one of us. Now, we may question uh, whether all of this has much relevance in our lives today, but I think it is quite relevant in a lot of ways. Think about the amount of emphasis and the amount of influence many people, and probably us included, put on figures around us, such as mega church pastors, dynamic business leaders, uh, leadership gurus, productivity experts, you name it. Those kinds of voices are all around us. And some of these thought leaders have enough biblical ideas sprinkled throughout that it's easy to overlook the parts that are clearly not biblical. But then many others don't even care about biblical truths. They are just simply, they have a following, they have a voice, they have a platform, and they just, they, they sh share these truths and, and people flock to them. So I guess the question for me is, where do we look for our wisdom and for our answers for life? In what or in whom do we ultimately place our faith? And our day-to-day -day choices and decisions are going to reflect what, where our confidence and our trust and our faith ultimately lies. Then he continues in verse 6. Yet among the mature do we impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So Paul is now starting to use the word wisdom uh, to describe God's power and contrasting that um, with human wisdom, the wisdom of this age. And that's all evident all around. And he's clear that this wisdom that he's talking about, this wisdom from God, is different than uh, the other... than. The, earthly wisdom or wisdom of this age. And there's two things that he says that the wisdom of this world is not. Well, no, that, I'm sorry. The wisdom of this age is not. Um, God's wisdom is not these two things. Uh, it's not the wisdom of this world or this age. Um, and it is not of the rulers or the princes of this age. It, Paul's wisdom is not the kind the government and business leaders have. Those kinds of things will not ultimately last. But it's a wisdom drastically different from the Greek philosophers and the Sophists and the, uh, the, the thought leaders of that day, the human thought leaders. Then he continues in verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Rather than human wisdom, Paul is speaking of a hidden or a secret wisdom whose source is God himself. Now, just think about that, 
being made available to us. Paul is imparting to the church this secret wisdom. This mystery or secret wisdom is not uh, something uh, mystical or uh, is something unknown, but rather it's a truth that was hidden in the past but is now revealed by the Holy Spirit to those that belong to God's family. One way of describing it might be that it's a family secret that is only known to those within the God's family, not to outsiders. And we see this secret or hidden wisdom referred to in Ephesians 2 and 3 where, uh, where Paul outlines that Jews and Gentiles are equal and one in Christ through faith and that they comprise the, uh, the, the body of Christ or the church as well. And that, that there's a oneness and a unity that comes together. And this idea of Jews and Gentiles, of Greeks and Romans and uh, whoever else in the world that truth could never be understood through human wisdom alone. It just didn't make any sense. The most intellectual philosophers and the wisest national leaders and the shrewdest business leaders could not really understand that truth. Only believers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, could know and comprehend that reality. Now, this isn't the, a Gnostic secret wisdom that's available only to the most intelligent or the most elite or the limited few, but rather a profound reality that is revealed to all those who put their trust in God and look beyond themselves and their human intellect for solutions to live life fully. And in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for they, if they would have, they would have crucified the Lord. N.T. Wright in his commentary, Paul for Everyone, says this, the highest religion, in referring to one of his professors actually that made this statement, the highest religion and the best government that the world had ever seen got together to execute the Lord of glory. An irony that Paul too undoubtedly appreciated, but it's, you know, they, if they would have known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. And the rulers of this age clearly refer to the government and religious leaders of the day. If these, it was these very influential and powerful government and religious leaders who intentionally chose to crucify Jesus Christ, and he was a completely innocent man. Rome was under the emperor uh, Tiberius, who was in charge, um, and he was acting through a local governor, Pontius Pilate. And then the Jews were under the rule of the chief priests, and in a kind of a tenuous relationship with Herod Antipas. And Antipas, Herod Antipas um, was part Jew, um, and he was so-called king of the Jews at the time that Jesus was here on this earth. And they worked hard to keep the high priests and Herod Antipas in this relationship tried to keep the Jewish population on good terms with Rome. So the Jews and the Romans were both responsible for Jesus' death. Each had sufficient influence and power that they could have stopped it from happening if they had wanted to do so. But both political and religious fervor and self-interest mixed with a healthy dose of corruption that is in most governments 
led to the decision to kill this innocent man. And so the result of this one decision by the Roman and Jewish leaders, they inadvertently ushered in the kingdom of God and ultimately the defeat of Satan and the forces of evil. It wasn't their intention, uh, and I don't think they would have wanted to do so if they would have known. If they could have undone that decision, they would have done so uh, many times, I believe. So then Paul shifts in verse 9 through 13 with using the word wisdom and starts, uh, and he's using the wisdom of human wisdom and wisdom of God, kind of contrasting perspectives, but now he's using the word spirit in a similar way to contrast between two spirits. Verses 9 and 10, you know, uh, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, that's from, he's quoting that from the Old Testament. Our imaginations are simply inadequate to understand what God is doing through and for those who love Jesus Christ and to love and love God. Our experience of here and now and even our entire lifespans are so finite that it really doesn't even give us a good reference point. We measure everything by what we experience and what's going on right now around us. Think about it. We occupy, each one of us occupies, I don't know, this is just an estimate, approximately four square feet of space on planet Earth. The planet covers 197 million square miles. So uh, we're four square feet on a planet of 197 million square miles. Our lifespan is no more than a dot on the timeline of history. So our immediate or even our entire life experience is limited to that minute piece of the planet for every minute of our short existence. And so we don't understand, we can't even begin to comprehend what all is happening everywhere else on this planet and throughout history. We just simply don't have that context. But we have the assurance that God has and is working through and for each one of for his followers. God has prepared blessings, he's prepared gifts and rewards, and we don't even know what they are, all are for those who love him. And he's also working his master plan through those who love him to accomplish the things that we might not have any idea about until Jesus returns. Again, we don't know how this all looks, but we can trust that he is at work through us and for us. And God discloses or reveals tiny pieces of these wonders beyond our comprehension through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows everything about God even the deepest things, but only reveals to us as much as he deems appropriate or that we're able to handle. Verse 11, kind of um, a rhetorical question here. Wouldn't it be nice at times to know what a person, another person is thinking? At the same time, I don't know that most of us would want anyone else to know what we're actually thinking at all times. And that's what he's asking here. It says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? 
Each of us have thoughts that go through our brains that no one else is aware of and we, that we may not, and we probably want it that way at times. Not that they're necessarily sinful, I'm not suggesting that, but they're simply unknown to others. Only I know my thoughts, only you know your thoughts. I mean, we know that God knows our thoughts, but that reality. I can't know your thoughts unless you share them, and neither can you know my thoughts unless I share them with you. It's not profound, it's just the way it is. And so Paul's asking here this rhetorical question, who knows a person's thought other than the person alone or that person's spirit? And the answer is obvious, no one does. But then in a similar way, he asks, makes a statement really here in the same way that no one can know um, Sorry, I lost my place here. No one can know or comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Um, so here we have the Spirit of God identified, and it's simply another way of calling or naming or describing the Holy Spirit. But it's tying it in with the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world from chapter 1, and he uses this language almost interchangeably, and the Holy Spirit is intimately familiar with and comprehends the very thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us the things of God. The Holy Spirit reveals God's blessings to us, as we saw in verse 10, teaches us in words, the very words of Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, before leaving this earth, promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to all believers and described what he will do. And I'd like to just read a couple of verses from John 16, verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now notice that. You cannot bear them now. Remember, if the Holy Spirit gives us what we can handle. Jesus speaking here, though. Um, when the Spirit of truth comes, listen to the four things that it specifically says that he will do. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So to the extent that we're able to handle these things, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, speak what he hears from God, declare the things that are to come to us, and glorify Jesus by declaring his truths to us. And so the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit's incredible gifts, and gives us access to these deep things of God. And he continues and contrasts this with the spirit of the world. He says, now you, have not now you have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The spirit of the world is not, is a complete contrast to the spirit of God. And another way of describing it is it's human wisdom versus God's wisdom. And you can't even begin to compare them. They don't even, you can't put them on the same scale to even begin to compare them. And Paul's reminding the Corinthian believers that Christians don't receive the spirit of the world. They don't receive a, a human wisdom that's so readily available all around them. Rather, believers have received the very spirit from God, the wisdom, the insight, the comprehension of the thoughts of God that will far surpass any human intellect. 
so that we might understand those things that have generous, been generously given to us by God himself. Continuing in verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by, wis- by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those that are spiritual. Paul affirms here that the words he speaks and teaches are not coming from the rhetorical and philosophical wisdom of the day, but it's what is being taught by the Spirit of God himself. The last phrase here, there are multiple interpretations as to what that means. The King James says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, the ESV, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people, Lenski combining with spiritual words, spiritual things, the NIV expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The original is not clear exactly what is exactly being referred to, except the spiritual truths and spiritual words are one component of it pretty clearly. The other component is either people or other things, other spiritual things. That is not as clear. But it is suggesting and putting a strong emphasis on the truths and God's word, the spiritual uh, things. We know that the Bible is the word of God, given the spirit of God, and it comes down to what our response is to those truths. We either trust God's word that is taught by God's spirit, or we trust the words of men. We can't call ourselves spiritual if we trust the words of men above what is taught by God's spirit. Then there's two kinds of people in verses 14 and 15. So now he shifts from spirit to a natural person and a spiritual person. Uh, Again, contrasting these two. The natural person rejects or does not accept the things the spirit of God is wanting to teach us. The natural person or the unregenerate person reject them as folly, as foolishness, as ridiculous, as unnecessary, as outdated, as irrational. That's the response that a natural person will often have to the Spirit of God, to the things of the Spirit of God. They lack the ability, it says, they are not even able to understand them because they are unregenerate and they don't have the Holy Spirit. Wiersbe, in uh, one of his expository outlines of the New Testament puts it this way. The Greeks were great philosophers, but their philosophy could not explain a God who died on a cross, or for that matter, a God that even cares about people. Their gods were not interested in the problems of mortals, and the Greek attitude toward the human body was such they could not conceive of God coming in human flesh. And so there was just the whole gospel message just didn't even fit in their way of thinking or their ability to rationalize. So given this reality in the past, but I mean, that's also in the present, is it any wonder when we stop and think about if that's true for unregenerate people, is it any wonder that a government of unregenerate people is unwilling or unable to understand or comprehend or and value the value of passing laws that uphold biblical morals? It doesn't even make sense to them. They, they don't even have a reference point for that to be rational. They just simply don't share 
the unregenerate simply don't share the values and the convictions of believers, and therefore they're just on a different uh, planet, so to speak. They're not able to understand because they are spiritually distinct or spiritually different from believers. But then verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. On the other hand, the spiritual person is a believer, a saved person, a born-again believer who's controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the kind of person is one that is discerning and able to evaluate with God's insights through the Holy Spirit. They have wisdom far beyond themselves and their own natural abilities. Uh, And they are the only ones that really have true wisdom. So the natural or the unregenerate may have a great deal of knowledge, but without the Holy Spirit, they lack the spiritual insight and wisdom. And believers, as we have probably all discovered at times, are simply puzzling or even confusing to unbelievers. Um, A paraphrase for verse 15 could be, a spiritual person understands the things of the spirit and has wisdom, but the people of the world cannot understand the spiritual person. Uh, Again, they just don't, they can't comprehend what that looks like. The spiritual person evaluates things on a completely different plane or from an entirely different context than an unsaved natural person. Because of this, the judgments or accusations of a natural or unsaved person against a spiritual person simply passes by with little or no impact on the spiritual person because analogy I just used a little bit ago is they're orbiting different planets. It's like it doesn't really have an impact on them because it doesn't even make sense uh, to the others, and spiritual person doesn't need to be offended by that. And the spiritual person has the confidence in the Holy Spirit that supersedes any resistance from an unsaved person. And we come to verse 16, uh, the mind of Christ. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isaiah 40, verse 13 is where this quote is taken from in the first part of this verse. It says, um, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Again, this is a rhetorical question. And by rhetorical question, it means that the answer is obvious. Who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? The answer is no one. I mean, that's what... The not, what the answer is. I mean, that's how we would respond, except if the Messiah has come to redeem us, to reconcile humanity to our creator, and based on what Paul has been laying out in these preceding verses, it's not a leap of faith to affirm that believers have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and as such, they have access to or even possess the very mind of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. It's, tr- it's true, and even though I believe it, I can't fully explain it or comprehend it, but we have access to the very mind of Christ. There is no depth of spiritual wisdom that's too deep, no height too high for us to begin to explore with the mind of Christ. 
the only restriction or the limitation is that what we're able to bear. Only what the Holy Spirit entrusts to reveal to us. So you and I, we, today, now, have the mind of Christ, have the mind of Jesus Christ. And that's true only because of the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit, which came to us only after Jesus returned to his Father after the resurrection. And I don't, I don't fully grasp this incredible and uh, the infinite value of this gift that we have been given through the Holy Spirit. And as a result, I, for myself, and I suspect that it's true for all of us, far too often tempted to simply revert to the realm of our own understanding or to other people around us rather than seeking God's infinite wisdom that's available through his spirit and the revealed word because we have the mind of Christ. That's something for you to ponder for a long time, uh, this week in particular, but think about that. So the challenge conclusion here, the challenge for us today is, is to remember a number of things. One of them, there are two kingdoms, two realms of existence, two realities, and maybe one way of thinking about it, even two planets on which we choose to live and where believers live and where unbelievers live. And only God's kingdom provides truth provides answers and the ultimate fulfillment and even understanding of life. The gospel message doesn't need to conform to or mix with any of the latest, greatest growth strategy movements uh, that are all around us because it's based in the very spirit of God. And that's, it's the spirit of God that gives the message power. It's not the approach, not the technique. It's not, um, it's not our, our wisdom behind it. <clears throat> and then when believers have put their faith and confidence in the gospel, they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those without God's Spirit simply can't understand and come up with their own attempts to gain wisdom, so-called wisdom. Then as we allow God's Spirit to control our lives, he reveals to us the very mind of Jesus Christ, the very thoughts of Jesus Christ. And that is a powerful uh, reality that we can enter into, but only as we continually rely on and seek out the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. We have the mind of Christ. I'm going to close with prayer and then turn it over to Ivan to close as he sees fit there's any other announcements. Father, thank you for this incredible promise. And I pray that you would enable each one of us to, um, to more fully look to and uh, trust the Holy Spirit to guide our lives rather than putting our, our uh, emphasis our, uh, and relying on the human wisdom that we see all around us, even our own human wisdom, but that rather we continuously 
an increasing measure come to the spirit in a spirit of humility, wanting to learn and to experience what you have for us uh, and that you can give to us through the Holy Spirit, that we can have the very thoughts, the very mind of Jesus Christ as we live our lives and as we interact with those around us. I want to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.